Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. What's the color of ice? I think about the wedge of ice broken from the lid of the lake in winter. It goes from dusky white to clear as it leaks itself into your hands. But when the glacier shears off and unveils its inner face, forged over a hundred thousand years, now you see a questioning blue. Now the glacier melts into the sea, and it's gone. Becomes green with algae, gray with mud, and a color that was once called wine dark. But what is the color of ice that's not the ice we know? that lies hidden behind a haze and swims in a darkness crushed by diamond rain. We approach our destination along the orbital plane, the great wide table of the sun. But as the planet comes into view, we're looking at the North Pole. This is summer. The frozen eye reclines on its flank. There's the pole now, bathing in the season of light. The hidden face the opposite pole, now holds court in the bitter cold of the stars. There's something about that blue, almost as cold as a thing can be, but joyful in the way it devours the sunshine. It reminds us of something, something on earth that brings life, or invites the living, or is alive itself. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. 
and I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be fulfilling uh, a, a very common request. Uh, years ago, we did a series of episodes where we looked at the moons of various planets in the solar system, uh, the moons of Jupiter, the moons of Saturn, the moons of Mars. And uh, I think we even did one, even though Venus doesn't have a moon, we did an episode sort of about the the uh, the alternative universe where there would be a, a moon of Venus, something like that. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to be talking about the moons of the seventh planet in our solar system. In this first episode in the series, I think we're going to be focusing mainly on the planet itself, and then we will get more into the moons in the subsequent part or parts. And since this is an audio medium, the question of how to pronounce that planet's name is unavoidable. I thought we should tackle it right here at the beginning, because I know we have said it multiple ways on the podcast before. I think I have said it multiple ways before. And the only thing to do is give ourselves preemptive full absolution to pronounce it any which way we want. Uh, But basically, so I was trying to figure out, like, what is actually the right way. And I think it goes like this. If you listen to astronomers and planetary scientists talk about this planet, most often you will hear them pronounce it Uranus. Basically, the word urine and then the word us. Um, On the other hand, there's sort of a Das Boot situation going on with this planet name. Like, for the most part, like, the the scientists might say Uranus, but for the most part, just people say Uranus, you know, at least they do in America. I don't know if it's different in other English-speaking cultures or other languages uh, where the name would be, you know, a direct homophone. But anyway, Uranus is, it's sort of part of the culture. It's part of the world we grew up in, and there's really no fixing that. So I think that will probably come out of our mouths as well. Well, the, the, the tragedy of it is that I feel like most of the time when you hear Uranus as the pronunciation for the planet Uranus, it is coming out of the mouth of, say, a, of a talk show host um, or, you know, late night news situation. A little bit of teehee. Yeah, I mean, no, not, not just a little bit of teehee, but like a front-loaded, uh, like dump truck quality of teehee <laughs> to the to the to the detriment of whatever the actual news is. Like it could be announced tomorrow that life was discovered on Uranus, but the uh, the the late night talk show host would say Uranus, everyone would laugh and completely forget that the most breathtaking yeah. news in the history of of our species was just revealed because. Uranus, if pronounced slightly um, incorrectly, I'm sorry, from my point of view, it sounds like you're saying somebody's anus. Right. A benevolent jellyfish inhabit the clouds. Uh, it's it's very interesting. But the main thing is we did successfully probe Uranus. Ha ha. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's I'm, I mean, especially for professional space science communicators, people working uh, for NASA and so forth. I don't know. I guess it probably comes to the point where you've got to just embrace it yeah. and uh, and roll with it. Uh, but it also, there has to still be some at least low level of just fixed frustration over the situation. I think it's one of those things that becomes annoying and then it comes full circle and becomes funny again. Yeah. But for another wrinkle, we have the apparently correct Uranus and then we have the the common Uranus. But according to an interview I saw with the American physicist Kevin Grazier, who writes a lot about space and about science fiction from a science perspective, he was the editor and a contributing author on The Science of Dune, which we have talked about on the show before. He says in one interview that it technically it is Uranus. So, you know, Mm. maybe he's right, but apparently nobody says it that way. 
I mean, it starts with everyone who wants to start pronouncing it differently. You know, yeah. say Uranus. Um, sounds good to me. So you say Uranus, I say Uranus. Most experts say Uranus, but in any case, it's going to be fine. We all know which planet we're talking about. It's number seven. It's big. It's blue. It's cold. It's beautiful. And it has a heck of a lot of moons. Yeah, and uh, and a fair amount of mystery surrounding it. You know, in this episode, we're venturing farther out uh, into the void here. So we're going to encounter some more space to wonder. Uh, We'll also, I think, eventually be getting to a fourth pronunciation for Uranus. Oh, boy. So so strap in. But um, Uranus, here are some of the basics uh, for anyone who needs a refresher. And I think we can all deal with a refresher. Uh, Uranus is the seventh planet from the sun. And in size, it has the third largest diameter in the solar system. It's about four times larger than Earth. In diameter. Yes. While Uranus and its neighbor Neptune were previously classified as gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, it became clear in the 1990s that they are actually a subset um, of gas giants, ice giants. So most of the planet's mass is believed to be a hot and dense fluid of icy materials around a small rocky core. Its atmosphere is mostly molecular hydrogen and atomic helium, and there also seems to be a small amount of methane. It experiences the equivalent of a 17-hour day, like a 17-hour, you know, 17 hours of Earth day, and an 84-year solar orbit. Now, you mentioned that most of the planet's mass is this uh, relatively hot and dense fluid of icy materials, but that should not give you the wrong impression about the planet overall, because an interesting fact about Uranus is that it is the coldest planet in the solar system, even though it is not the farthest from the sun. Uh, Neptune is much farther away from the sun, I think something like 10 times the distance from the Earth to the sun uh, farther away than Uranus is. And yet it is actually a little bit warmer on average. Uh, The temperature in the upper atmosphere of Uranus reaches negative 224 degrees Celsius, colder than equivalent measures on Neptune, which are about uh, 10 degrees Celsius higher. I want to come back in a little bit to why that might be. But yeah, not the farthest away, but the coldest. It's cold out there. It's lonely out there. Now, you mentioned that it takes 84 years for Uranus to orbit the sun once. That means since its discovery in 1781, which we will uh, narrate in a few minutes here, less than three full years have elapsed on on Uranus. It's 1781 plus 84 Earth years is 1865 plus another 84 is 1949. (laughs) And then it will be another full year on that planet when it's 2033 on Earth. So the calendar uh, pages tear away quite a bit slower there. Yeah. This longer year also gives you an idea of how far away from the sun this planet is. You know, we this comes up on the show a good bit. Uh, When we make visual representations of the solar system, one thing that's pretty much always impossible to capture is the real relative size and distance between objects. There really, I think, is no convincing way to represent the real distance between planets in the solar system within the same image and have it make intuitive sense. So uh, so let, let's talk about the scaling up of distances as one moves further out from the sun. The average distance from Earth to the sun is a, a commonly used measurement. It's called an astronomical unit, or AU for short, and it's equivalent to about 149.6 million kilometers. Pulling up numbers cited by NASA JPL, 
uh, for these other planets. Both Mercury and Venus, of course, are within one AU. So Mercury is about 0.4 and Venus is about 0.7 AU from the sun. They're both closer than us. Mars is about 1.5 AU, so about one, one and a half times the distance from us to the sun. Suddenly, Jupiter is more than five times the distance. Saturn is 9.5 AU. And then Uranus is suddenly 19.2 AU. So the distances multiply greatly the further you go out. And then Neptune is uh, is about 30, so another another 10, basically, uh, sort of 10 AU between Saturn and Uranus, and then another 10 between Uranus and Neptune. Yeah, so venturing into, into the outer solar system, you know, it's like it's like leaving an urban center and uh, traveling out into the boonies. The uh, the gas stations uh, that that you would uh, you would venture into are 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 farther and farther apart. Uh, and uh, and you begin to wonder uh, where your next tank is going to come from. Yeah, so it's always impossible to reckon the real scale of space. And the funny thing is, this is just our solar system. You know, this is just mm-hmm. <laughs> like the things that are actually relatively very close together from a space perspective. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's see some more facts about uh, Uranus itself. Uh, it has 13 rings, and like Venus, it rotates east to west. It also rotates at a near 90-degree angle Uh, from the plane of its orbit. So this gives it the appearance of spinning on its side. That is a very interesting and unique fact about Uranus. So if you can picture it, all of the other planets in the solar system, you know, they all have some degree of axial tilt, but they more or less spin like a top with the north and south poles facing more or less perpendicular to the solar plane. So you can imagine the sun in the middle of the solar system, and then there is a disk, a flat disk spreading out from the sun that all of the planets orbit on. Those planets have some tilt, but they more or less rotate so that their equator is in line with that plane and their north and south poles are are at right angles to it. Uranus is the exception. It lies on its side. Its uh, its axial tilt is something like 97 or 98 degrees, so almost perfectly sideways. From the perspective of the solar plane, its equator rotates up and down and its poles point to the sides, which has the strange effect that its seasons uh, through as it orbits the sun throughout its year uh, mean that the poles get get like many Earth years of light and darkness as the uh, as the year progresses. So for 42 years, its North Pole will be in relative sunshine and its South Pole will be in relative darkness. And then it flips around for the other season. It's a weird planet. Very strange. And this actually comes back to the question of why Uranus is the coldest planet, even though it's not the farthest from the sun. How could a planet closer to the sun be colder than one farther away? The answer is that planets give off their own heat, and compared to most, Uranus gives off very little. So one major idea proposed to explain why Uranus gives off so little intrinsic heat Uh, is the same as the reason it, unlike other planets in the solar system, rotates on its side. Scientists think that billions of years ago, during the formation of the solar system, Uranus very likely suffered a colossal impact from a roughly Earth-sized or Mars-sized object 
which was able to both knock it out of its original orientation and give it its um, its uh, backwards rotation pattern opposite the rest of the solar system and its uh, sideways orientation, its sideways axial tilt, but also to blast away much of its mass and energy, leaving it with less intrinsic heat than even other ice giants like Neptune. And so if this impact hypothesis is correct, it would explain much of what we know about Uranus, why it's so cold, why it's tilted, and, and why its rotation is the way it is. One of the most striking things about Uranus is its appearance, which can vary based on seasonal conditions. But in the famous true color images assembled from what was captured by the narrow angle camera of Voyager 2 in 1986, the planet looks like an almost perfectly uniform field of pale blue-green color, like a featureless cyan ocean of fog. And this is especially strange when you think about it in contrast to the sort of banded surface of Jupiter. It's just ripping with visible storms or, uh, or like the sandy stripes you see on Saturn uh, with that big nasty polar hexagon. The truth is Uranus is not always as calm-looking as it is in these famous photos. Uh, for one example, I found a February 7th, 2019 NASA News article by Ray Villard and Claire Saravia uh, noting photos that had been taken by the Hubble Space Telescope of visible storms on both Uranus and Neptune. And in these pictures, the storm on Uranus appears as a gigantic white dome of clouds swarming over the planet's north pole. Uh, and the authors note that this gigantic weather pattern might have been formed by seasonal changes of uh, flow in the atmosphere because, remember, the planet is tilted on its side. So as the seasons change, the part of the planet facing the direction of the sun goes from a polar region that basically remains in direct sunlight for many, many Earth years at a time to an equatorial region that rotates through standard day-night cycles like Earth does, except it's rotating on its side. And these drastic changes in seasons may give rise to major changes in the flow of the atmosphere, resulting in weather like this. Uh, I was uh, reading an article by the astrophysics blogger Ethan Siegel, which made the point that the Voyager 2 images are probably especially featureless because they were taken during the solstice on Uranus, when the continuous rays of sunlight had been falling on one of the planet's polar regions for many Earth years. And so this regime of nonstop polar daytime created a haze of methane in the upper atmosphere. So up at the top of the atmosphere, there's all this methane up there, which both masks the clouds and the visible weather patterns below. So you can't really see what's going on beneath all that methane. And it absorbs red light, leading to the pale blue-green color that we can't stop staring at. Uh, by contrast, when you see photos of Uranus taken by telescopes during its equinox, you will see more defined atmospheric bands and storms and clouds, not as dramatic at all as what you'd see on Jupiter, but the stuff is there. So Uranus is not actually always featureless. This seems to be a function of when and how it was photographed by Voyager 2. But in those Voyager images, it is deeply striking, almost haunting, how frozen and unperturbed and uniform the planet appears. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's 
there, there's a there's a calmness. So it's a cal- like you look at images of of, uh, of Uranus and it's it's calming compared to like the 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 evident kind of complexity and chaos of Jupiter. Absolutely colder, stiller, more uniform. It all even lying on its side, and not to get too uh, anthropomorphic, but as if dead. Yeah, and there's also a sense of the sky to it, which uh, is fitting. We'll come back to that in a second. But yeah, the, mostly though this this uh, this this episode, uh, we're getting into the moons of Uranus, and it has a healthy number of moons. Twenty-seven known moons. Uh, this is a good. No- this is a number of, that, that we can handle. We can actually name, I think, all the moons of Uranus. Whereas, of course, there were some, some some really robust moon counts for Jupiter and Saturn. So things are, are leveling out a little bit for us as we continue our journey uh, out through the solar system. Yeah, I think this is more of a fair fight. I don't think we said the names of all the moons of Jupiter or Saturn. Right. Well, we can't promise in this series that we're going to like discuss all of Uranus's moons deeply because some of them are just kind of yeah. rocks. That I don't know how much there is to say about them. Uh, I, I don't mean to be offensive if you're a devotee of any particular of Bianca or something. Uh, but yeah, we will have more to say about some than others. Yeah, and and there's just not a lot to say about some of them just because we just haven't explored. Um, uh, Uranus or its moons as much. We've only had uh, the, the one Voyager 2 flyby, really, and that's it, uh, based, you know, in addition to things like um, Hubble analysis and so forth. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. 
It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, huh? run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we explore more about the planet and its moons, I think we should take a little bit of time to discuss the origins of uh, this this name, the mythological moniker that has caused so much pleasure and pain among astronomers worldwide. Yeah, that's right. It, and, you know, it could have been it could have been weirder in some <laughs> respects because it took about 70 years for this to be firmly decided upon that, yes, this planet is Uranus. Um William Herschel uh, wanted to name it after King George III, so he wanted to call it essentially the George Star, Georgium um, Sidus. But but luckily we didn't. I mean, can you imagine if if that was the we had all these uh, you know these Roman deity names and then uh, George Star. Amazing. <laughs> and presumably Neptune. I've got a story to tell about William Herschel in, in, in a little bit here. But yeah, wanting to name it after King George III. He's just forever in the heavens. That that would be hilarious. Yeah. I don't know what the modern equivalent is like. This is the this is the Gerald Ford planet. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. There's always going to be something weird about naming uh, these you know, the, the astral bodies after things in a given culture. Um, and we'll run into some of that again uh, when we get into some of the literary uh, names that are invoked in the moons. But uh, but yeah, I, I just can't imagine this being the George Star. So the namesake here is uh, the Greek primordial deity of the sky. Um, Uranus, or I think more correctly, or uh, would be Uranus, right? We've talked about this before on the show. I don't know if I'd stand by that. I've heard it said that way, too. So we've got Uranus is what uh, most astronomers and planetary scientists say. Uh, the lay public, at least in the U.S., says Uranus. Uh, we got one interview with a guy who says technically it's Uranus. And yes, I've, I've also heard Uranus. Yeah, though I, I love Uranus, but I'm going to feel like a weirdo if I start calling it that just among friends and family so, or even on the podcast. Uh, so I'm just going to have to stick with you. OK, let's do it. All right. So who is I, we can say Uranus, though, when we're referring to the God, I think maybe that's a good way of, of, of differentiating it here. Um, Greek primordial deity of the sky, both a child and a consort of Gaia, the parent and a parent of Titans of uh, the Cyclopses, as well as the Hecatoncheries, the hundred-handed warriors, who don't get enough, I think, uh, attention in the various wars of the gods, perhaps just because they're, they're hard to illustrate. It's hard to maybe imagine 
what a hundred-handed uh, monster looks like. I don't know. You can imagine two hands. You just kind of multiply from there. Yeah, just like an absurdity of Goro uh, coming <laughs> at you there. What's the Latin prefix for 50? Like the uh, the Quinta Deca Goro? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds good okay. to me. <laughs> That's a lot of button inputs, though, for the punches. Anyway, Uranos is the one who stands on high. He is the rainmaker. Uh, among his many children was the titan Cronus, who at Gaia's urging uh, rebelled against uh, against his father and, of course, Cronus famously castrated his father in the myths and cast the bloody pieces o- over his shoulder and ushered in a new age of gods. Cronus would, of course, eventually be overthrown by his own son, Zeus. Okay, well, here I thought this is a good opportunity to have a reading from Hesiod's Theogony to explain what happened to old uh, Uranus here. Oh, let's have it. Okay, this is the version hosted on the Harvard Center for Hellenic Studies website. This is a translation by Nagy and Banks. Oh, and it's going to mention Earth and Sky. I think Earth would be the goddess Gaia, and Sky would be Uranus here. Yeah. Hesiod writes, Now monstrous strength is powerful, joined with vast size. For of as many sons as were born of Earth and Sky, they were the fiercest and were hated by their father from the very first. As soon as any of these was born, he would hide them all and not send them up to the light in a cave of the earth. And Sky exulted over the work of mischief, while huge earth groaned from within, straightened as she was, and she devised a subtle and evil scheme." For quickly having produced a stock of white iron, she forged a large sickle blade and gave the word to her children and said encouragingly, though troubled in her heart, Children of me and of a father madly violent, if you would obey me, we shall avenge the baneful injury of your father, for he was the first that devised acts of indignity. So spoke she, but soon seized on them all, nor did any of them speak. Till, having gathered courage, great and wily Kronos addressed his dear mother thus in reply, Mother, this deed at any rate I will undertake and accomplish, since our father of detested name I care not, for he was the first that devised acts of indignity. They're really, uh, they're really hitting the talking points here. Yeah. Thus spoke he, and huge earth rejoiced much at heart, and hid and planted him in ambush. In his hand she placed a sickle with jagged teeth, and suggested to him all the stratagem. Then came vast sky, bringing night with him, and eager for love brooded around earth, and lay stretched on all sides. But his son, from out his ambush, grasped at him with his left hand, while in his right he took the huge sickle, long and jagged toothed and hastily mowed off the genitals of his father and threw them backwards to be carried away behind him. Pretty, pretty rough stuff. Uh, and I don't know why the sickle had to have jagged teeth. I, I don't know uh, either. Hesiod was just laying it in there a little bit. It's a serrated sickle. I've never even heard of such a thing. <laughs> it's like a steak knife. Yeah. But as I mentioned, yeah, Uranus there, his name is synonymous with Sky. So in this translation, they just call him Sky. So I think it's very interesting that we end up with a planet that, in a way, based on the original mythological context, could just be called Sky. It is the Sky planet. Yeah, yeah. And of course, yeah, it's interesting that we're switching from from Roman to Greek and in, in, uh, coming out here to Uranus. And, uh, of course, this may raise the question, well, why? Like, why are we talking about modern discussions of what this planet will be named? And, of course, you know, that has to do with um, with, with how late it was discovered. Um, 
properly discovered. Because when discussing, uh, basically this comes down to a, a discussion of the classical planets versus the, the more uh, outer and, and I guess you could say modern planets. The classical planets are those visible to the naked eye and bright enough to be considered important in ancient astronomy and astrology. Um, and and uh, we'll discuss a little bit more about what that means in just a second. Uh, there, there, there are many names for the classical planets because they pop up in various astronomical systems. Right. They were known to many different ancient cultures, so they have many different names. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for instance, Mercury through Saturn have names that indicate uh, elemental alignment in Chinese tradition. So Mars is the fire star. Uh, Jupiter is the wood star. Um, that sort of thing. But the Chinese for the outer planets, interestingly enough, is not based in, in, in actual like Chinese astro, astrological history, but in translation of at least the spirit of the Western names. So uh, Uranus uh, in, in Mandarin is uh, Tain Wang Xing or Sky King Star. Uh, so I think that's that's oh. interesting. Just basically alluding to yes, this is a sky god. That's the name that we've used in naming the planet. So it's sky sky king star. Neptune is ocean king star. Pluto is netherworld king star. In translation, I love that. Yes, translating the sense of the names. Like so, the name in Mandarin is like a summary of where the name comes from, like the Latin or Greek name. Yeah. So again, talking about the classical planets here, these were the, 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 the planets that were known to antiquity. Uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Uranus was the first planet discovered via the aid of a telescope, uh, and it happened in 1781 by astronomer William Herschel. Uh, in addition, he also discovered infrared radiation. Uh, he's also credited with the discovery of um, uh, Titania and Oberon, which are some moons we'll get into in a bit, as well as uh, two of the, the, the uh, moons of Saturn, Enceladus and Mimas. His son, John Herschel, got to carry on the tradition and named seven moons of Saturn and four moons of Uranus. Now, a really interesting thing about the discovery of Uranus by William Herschel is that at first, he did not realize he had discovered a new planet in the solar system. And the reason for this will sort of tie into things we've been talking about. Uh, I was reading about this in a paper called Uranus and the Establishment of Herschel's Astronomy by Simon Schaefer, published in the Journal of the History of Astronomy in 1981. And so the story of the discovery of uh, Uranus goes like this. William Herschel had undertaken a project beginning in 1779 to survey all of the stars in the sky to the limit of the eighth magnitude using a seven-foot reflecting telescope, mainly for the purpose of identifying double stars so that Herschel could uh, try to make measurements of stellar parallax. In March 1781, Herschel had his telescope moved to his house on New King Street in Bath in, uh, in Somerset, England, and he was picking up uh, with his observations from this location. And on the week of the discovery of Uranus, he had been occupied cataloging the visible stars within the constellation Gemini and also with uh, some observations of the planets Mars and Saturn. And on Tuesday, March 13th at 10.30 p.m., Herschel made a note of an object in the area of the star Pollux, also known as Beta Geminorum. The object was, quote, a curious either nebulous star or perhaps a comet. 
And uh, he later translated this discovery to his volume in progress, which was called Observations on the Fixed Stars. Uh, quote, looking at a star in the quartile between Aragus' right foot and the left foot of Castor, I discovered a comet. It was at the distance of almost two-thirds of my field of view from a small telescopic star, which followed it and seemed to have the same declination. Now, Herschel didn't seem to be uh, immediately overwhelmed with ideas of the importance of this finding. He, after this, just went back to looking for double stars. And it wasn't until Saturday, March 17th, which was four days later, that he went back and looked for the curious nebulous star or perhaps comet again. And this time he concluded that it must be a comet rather than a star because it had changed its place. So he invited some friends over, including a guy named Dr. William Watson, uh, to come take a look at the comet he had found. And he noted in his journal that, unfortunately, the measurements he took that night were written down wrong because Watson and uh, another gentleman wouldn't stop talking at him while he was trying to write them. <laughs> but he eventually sent off his findings in a letter to the Royal Society in London, and Herschel reported that the object uh, was a newly discovered comet. But... Uh, there were some strange things about it. Based on initial observations, it would seem that the comet was, quote, much larger in diameter, but less luminous than any comet uh, known at the time. And that, quote, its body seemed very well defined, having neither beard nor tail. Now, that struck me because I was like, what, what is a beard? I, comets are often said to have tails, but mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a beard I was less familiar with. As best I could figure out, this, I think, seems to just be another way of describing uh, the tail of a comet, which, of course, the tail is an elongated cloud trailing off of the comet away from the sun, caused when the comet approaches closer in its orbit to the sun, and then solar radiation heats the volatile materials on the surface of the comet, and they vaporize and stream away into space. I don't know if the following is the, the difference emphasized by beard versus tail, but comets often do have two distinct tails, a dust tail made of the dust, the fine particles coming off of the comet uh, from, this, uh, from this outgassing when it's heated, and then also a gas tail made of glowing ionized gases. Uh, however, I could find archaic references to comets in general, uh, simply calling them, quote, bearded stars. So, I don't know, maybe a beard means either one. I guess the other idea is that it could possibly refer to the idea of a coma, which is the sort of tenuous atmosphere of a comet seen usually as a fuzzy spherical cloud around the solid nucleus. Hmm. I wonder, too, if this might come down to uh, sort of the distinction between sort of, you know, more modern uh, telescope generated imagery and pure telescope uh, observation. Mm. You know, we've talked about that a little bit, like the, um, uh, the, the, the role of the observer in real time in sort of, um, you know, cl classical uh, telescope astronomy mm. versus uh, the more modern use of imagery. I, I don't know for sure about that, but uh, so he's like, oh, OK, it's a comet, but it just it doesn't have a lot of the characteristics we would expect of a comet. In fact, the paper cites a letter from the French astronomer Charles Messier, who was known as, quote, the ferret of comets. I'd never <laughs> heard that before, but I think he found a lot of them. Messier, the ferret of comets, wrote to Herschel in April of, of 1781. Uh, it was quoted in the paper in French, so I had to translate. Apologies if this is a little bit approximate. Uh, but Messier says, uh, I'm amazed at this comet, which does not carry with it any distinctive character of comets, and that it does not resemble any of those which I have observed, which are 18 in number. 
So I just thought this was interesting. It seemed at first all of the learned astronomers were calling it a comet, even though they recognize that it's really not like a comet at all. Like it doesn't have any of the characteristics we would expect, doesn't behave like a comet. It seems that the first person on record to have mentioned that this new comet might actually be a planet was the British astronomer royal Neville uh, Maskerlin, who argued that it might be a comet, but it might also be a new planet. Uh, and if it were a comet, it would be unlike any other. Herschel apparently did not refer to Uranus as a planet until the summer of 1782 when he called it, quote, my planet. And again, yeah, he wanted to originally call it Georgium Cetus, the, the George star. Again, the George star. LOL. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. I've lost on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. 
Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But so I was just wondering, like, why is everybody so quick to assume it's a comet? Why did it take them a little while to come around to the conclusion that it was actually a planet? And Schaefer in this paper argues that even though Maskerlin was the first to suggest it might be a planet, quote, Maskerlin's own practice was fundamentally conditioned by the 18th century triumphs in cometary astronomy. Comets dominated the contemporary perception of the heavens. It seemed inconceivable that a new planet could be discovered. And I think this this must just come back to the state of astronomy as, as it was at the time, because as you were talking about, Rob, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, all the other planets up to this point had been known about since antiquity. They were written about by Babylonian astronomers thousands of years ago. They were charted with the naked eye and Copernicus had uh, correctly figured out that they orbited the sun and not the Earth. Now, I did just want to drive home here that that again, yeah, the classical planets are those that could be seen with the naked eye, but also were distinct enough to be of value. Yeah. Um, but if, if you're really looking with the naked eye and the conditions are just right, you apparently can see Uranus. Uh, but again, the, the whole deal here is that what you see is not significant enough to have uh, you know, had any impact on these, these ancient uh, ast- astrological and astronomical systems. Uh, according to Pete Lawrence, writing for BBC Sky at Night magazine in 2020, um, yeah, it is possible to see Uranus with the naked eye of conditions and preparations are just right. He stresses, however, that the planet, quote, shines at the edge of naked eye visibility and any direct views of Uranus aren't always conclusive. Yeah, that was my understanding from from reading all this stuff as well, that it's sort of right on the edge of naked eye visibility to the point that where some people argue that, oh, maybe this thing that somebody said, uh, a, you know, a naked eye astronomer in the ancient world observed was actually an observation of Uranus. But it's it's hard to know. To put it in terms of our Weird House Cinema listeners might uh, appreciate, it's like watching The Devil's Reign and then asking, is John Travolta in this? <laughs> is John Travolta a star? Um, evidence is inconclusive. Right. But so coming back to the so like all the planets through Saturn had been known since antiquity to multiple different cultures. There had been other heavenly bodies identified since the invention of telescopes, but none of them were planets in the solar system. Uh, Galileo had identified moons of Jupiter. Uh, Cassini and Huygens identified moons of Saturn. But Herschel's identification of Uranus was actually the first time since ancient times that the existence of a new planet in the solar system had been confirmed. That's just not something these astronomers were really expecting to find. Comets, on the other hand, were constantly being discovered. Discovering new comets was one of the major endeavors of astronomers of the day. You had the ferret of comets out there doing, you know, <laughs> uh, ferreting them out. So uh, you, you could think of this as a kind of astronomical confirmation bias. Comets were just, that's what you discover. That's the thing you're expecting to see. Yeah, yeah. It's planets and then just it's filthy with comets. And you got to send the, the comet truffle hog out there to, to, to root them out. So, of course, there were many subsequent discoveries of uh, the moons of Uranus, but a lot of what we now know uh, about Uranus really comes in the later 20th century with the flyby of Voyager 2. Yeah, and uh, and as we'll really be driven home as we discuss these moons one by one, like it's like Voyager 2 is the defining mission, like a lot of what we know 
comes either in it from that uh, that flyby or it's the combination of that flyby information uh, combined with say Hubble telescope uh, information as well. Um, so it's uh, a lot of the mysteries of, of Uranus and its moons remains. All right, so when we come back in the next episode, we will blow through the 27 known moons of Uranus. All 27 in one episode? I don't know if we can do that. All tw- all 27, one episode. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. So be sure to join us for that. Um, and then, I don't know, and then at some point in the future, we'll move on um, to Neptune. Uh, but next episode will be uh, Moon by Moon, the moons of Uranus. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, well, check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. If you go back far enough, you'll find those episodes we did about the other moons in our solar system, um, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, uh, etc. But uh, yeah, core episodes published on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do Listener Mail. Wednesdays, we do a short-form Monster Fact or Artifact. And tomorrow's will also tie into Uranus. So uh, uh, tune in uh, for that. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Pawsway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.